The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, I want to, as I begin this uh, series in Ephesians, want to bring you back to a special moment in my life. Um, I was on a mission trip in Kenya in 1986. It was the summer of 86, June of 86, and uh, we were there ministering. It was a 10-week um, mission trip, and uh, I'll never forget this. It was one of, the, one of the turning points of my life. I was sitting on a bench waiting for a bus in, uh, in Kenya, and the bus was going to come and bring me back to Nairobi. And I remember asking a Kenyan brother there when the bus would come, and he said, in the, in the afternoon. I'll never forget that. It, in the afternoon, what does that mean? So being a typical time-driven, you know, type A American, I was there at 11.49 or something like that, ready for the afternoon bus, which rolled in in four-ish, I think, three-ish. Doesn't, doesn't matter. I was there, and I had nothing but my little pocket Bible. And after a while, I kind of got the sense that it was going to be a while. Um, and so I didn't know what to do. And I had dabbled with Scripture memorization before that time, but... I opened up to Ephesians and I began with Ephesians 1.1 to memorize that book. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. I began a journey of scripture memorization that's gone on now for 29 years. And I've memorized it in, done a lot of work in memorization in lots of books. But this book is special for me. This was the first book I ever memorized. And it is the book that I have recited to myself by far the most. Literally hundreds and hundreds of times I've been over this book. Some portions of it, I would say, maybe heading toward a thousand times in the 29 years. So this is a, pri- a precious book to me. And I would just begin by commending the practice of memorization to all of you. I actually think Ephesians is a great book to begin memorization in. It gives you an awful lot for, as Kyle said, those 155 verses. There's so many deep doctrines that'll that'll take you a long time to ponder, and then there's the very practical issues of the Christian life. So we begin today a journey uh, in one of the most astonishing books and writings that there's ever been in human history. If you think about it, six chapters, 155 verses, you think, how much could be in there? It takes less than 15 minutes to recite the whole book, but it covers... You know, the scope and magnitude of God's working in this world in ways that no other book really does. Uh, it has a kind of a, a high view over all of these things. Paul doesn't write to specific situations in the Ephesian churches. He doesn't address people by name or situations that he wants to try to solve. He's really giving an amazing view of the overall plan of God and then how it's lived out in life. So we're going to fly over today all six chapters of this book. We're going to try to get a grand overview of Ephesians 1 through 6. I could have had Damien read all six chapters, but we'd still be at it at this point. But it would have been wonderful to hear those verses. But we're going to just have a kind of a flyover here. A number of years ago, my son and I uh, took a trip to the Grand Canyon, and we had a breathtaking view of the whole thing from the South Rim. As you go up there, uh, and, and travel, get higher and higher, and then you, you park in this parking lot, you go through these streets, and, and just there it is. And I've, I've never forgotten that. And we walked along the, the south rim, along the footpath there, and we were just seeing uh, the expanse of this thing, this, uh, the Grand Canyon, and it was just hard to even imagine how beautiful in the scope and magnitude of it. Well, we spent a few days there, and we wanted to get more of an experience with the Grand Canyon, and we had a number of options. 
we ended up choosing this one. We took a raft ride, a whitewater raft ride along the Colorado River and spent, you know, maybe basically two-thirds of a day looking at the, the walls of the canyon and, and you know, camping and, and uh, just for, you know, for lunch and then, and then uh, coming back. It was a great time. But there were other options available to us if we wanted to get to know the canyon a little bit better. For example, uh, there was a hot air balloon possible, uh, a hot air balloon ride, $300 for one hour. Um, per person, um, so uh, we weren't going to do that, but, um, but you can imagine just coasting very slowly and silently at a certain height, uh, 400 feet up, breathtaking views, very slow, don't see much of it, one hour long, $300 um, per person. So um, then there was a possibility of a small plane ride, uh, 5,000 feet up, that was also one hour, but you could see a lot more, vast coverage. Um, and just a lot of, a lot of uh, area that you could see from 5,000 feet, uh, feet up, 450 uh, per person. Um, then there was the helicopter ride, 1,000 uh, feet lower than the small plane, able to hover and study certain aspects and, uh, you know, different parts uh, from the altitude. They didn't say what the price was. They said to call for quotes. So I figured that's <laughs> probably not going to happen. Um, and then there was the donkey ride down, down to the Colorado River. And we could do the donkey ride and an overnight camping trip. Well, this morning we're going to be taking the airplane ride. And we're going to fly over the book of Ephesians at 5,000 feet. And we're going to look down and, and we're going to be able to kind of zoom in and look at some of the grand and glorious themes in the book of Ephesians. Next week we're going to begin our donkey ride. Um, and Kyle said a few months. Is that what you said, brother? Do I have to get this done in two months? I don't know. We'll see. Um, but we'll be able to go down verse by verse and look more carefully at aspects of this incredible book. That'll begin next week. So let me begin with just a quick overview of all of the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to break it into two main sections. Ephesians 1 through 3 and Ephesians 4 through 6. So Ephesians 1 through 3, we could kind of title this way. What God has done in Christ. What God has done in Christ. So a picture of the saving work of God in Christ. Ephesians 1 through 3. And then Ephesians 4 through 6 is going to give us what we must do in Christ. So it's uh, more the Christian life and how then shall we live given this great salvation. Ephesians 4 through 6. Now the epistle begins with Paul's standard greeting. Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. He opens the epistle with that greeting which I've already quoted to you. He emphasizes his call as an apostle uh, by the will of God and he writes to give his people grace or give God's people grace through the epistle. Then in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, we have God's eternal purpose in redemption. And God in these incredible verses, uh, 12 verses, trace out, traces out in astonishing terms God's eternal salvation plan. Beginning with election and predestination before the foundation of the world and then carried out by the redeeming work of Christ on the cross, his redemption, the redemption by his blood, and then applied through the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. So we see the Trinity at work, Father, Son, and Spirit. We'll come back to that later in this message. But we see that. And look at verses 4 through 7, Ephesians 1, 4 through 7. It says, For he, God the Father, chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the creation of the world 
that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has free, freely given us in the one he loves. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And I can't help but just stop right there and make an appeal to any that are here outside of Christ, that are lost, that have come here, you've been invited, maybe last week was your first week here and you've come back for a second week. But in any case, you know that you're lost, you know that you're not a Christian. Ephesians 1-7 speaks to you. It speaks of a redemption through the blood of Christ. Christ shed his blood. Christ is God's eternal son who became incarnate by the power of the Holy Spirit, who lived a sinless life and who died on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me. And that he has worked a redemption through his shed blood. Right there in Ephesians 1-7. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, how we yearn for that, don't we? We need forgiveness of sins and how it is available for us through faith in Christ. Then Paul, having traced out the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We'll come back to that later. Then prays for the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And that's the first of, of uh, many prayers you see in Paul's uh, epistles, the first of two incredible prayers here in Ephesians. Paul reveals his prayer life for them, and he prays in verses 18 and 19 for the, that they would know God better, that they would have a deeper knowledge of God, and that they would also know the hope to which he has called them, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for those who believe. So that we would know God better, that's what he prays for. And that's my prayer for this sermon as well. That as a result of this study in Ephesians, you'll just know God better. You'll have a deeper sense of the knowledge of God. But beyond that, for you who are Christians, that you would know the hope to which you are called. Your heavenly hope. And how rich you are as Christians. We're going to get a, a chance to look at that and study it in detail, God willing. But you are infinitely wealthy in Christ. And also that you would have a sense of the immeasurable power that is at work in your life and in the world around you to get you to your heavenly inheritance. So he's praying for you to know these things. And then he likens that power that's at work in your life to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. <clears throat> and that power raised Christ from the dead out of that tomb and ascended him through the clouds, through the heavenly realms, up to the very highest place at the right hand of God. And there he sits at the right hand of God. And, and he's far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God has placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills, fills everything in every way. Ephesians 1. And so he wants you to have a sense of that same power that raised Jesus to that lofty place. And Christ is ruling over heaven and earth for you, for your benefit, that power is at work in your life. It's breathtaking. And then in chapter 2, he transitions to say, do you understand what your condition was? You also were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. He talks to us and makes us realize just how desperate the condition was. We were the living dead. We were biologically alive, but apart from Christ, we were spiritually dead. And God has taken every Christian 
and raised him or her from the dead by the power of the gospel, by the power of the Spirit, by his grace. And God has raised us up from the dead and now we are alive and we will live forever and ever by the sovereign power of God. And we have to understand this grace. And so he celebrates grace in very familiar verses, probably the most famous in the epistle, maybe the most famous. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the first that I memorized, actually a few years before I memorized the whole book. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So we have this incredible grace at work in our lives, and God has raised us up that he might put that grace on display. And now in Ephesians 2.10, we have a glorious life of good works to live. And those those good works are worth doing. As we said last week in my sermon on Easter, I was saying that our good works, which God here in Ephesians 2.10 has prepared in advance that we should walk in them, that they're not done in vain. That all of these good works are, are tending toward the end of God's glory in the building of his church. And that we have a role to play, Ephesians 2.10. So life is worth living for the Christian. How beautiful is that? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Then Paul talks about the mystery of God's purpose in making Jew and Gentile Christians, Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus, one in Christ. So in Galatians, uh, sorry, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Paul reveals this mystery, this mysterious purpose that Jewish believers in Christ and Gentile believers in Christ are now one in him and that God has created in Christ one new humanity, one new man out of the two. No longer Jew or Gentile, but now Christian. And that we have an amazing unity in Christ. And that God has taken the, the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and destroyed it, eradicated it through the death of Jesus on the cross. Those regulations of circumcision, dietary regulation, other things that separated Jew from Gentile has been removed in Jesus. And he has made Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians perfectly one. And he's building us together into a structure, a, a, a kind of a spiritual building. There's an architecture to it. There's a foundation that's been laid. And there's this rising building. And it's rising up through the, the workings of the body of Christ. It's rising up through the power of the Spirit. It's rising to become a holy temple in which God will dwell by his Spirit eternally. And that's the picture that we have. And so this really is the answer, and friends, the only answer to racism and racial divisions and disharmony in the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to get a chance, God willing, to talk about all that at the end of Ephesians 2. Then in Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, Paul talks about his own ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. He's in prison for the gospel, as he frequently was, and he wants to write to them about his ministry. He wants to talk to them about the administration of his mystery and how special and a unique individual he is. And, and he's saying that not because he's arrogant or boastful, not at all. It's not that. It's that God has set him apart as apostle to the Gentiles to show his saving purpose toward Gentiles. And how at last now, this mystery which was hidden in ages past, kept hidden in God, has now been made known that God intends Jews and Gentiles together in Christ to be one. And this is an incredible mystery, but it's now come into time. And so there's going to be this lavish bumper crop of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. And the he, as an apostle to the Gentiles, is there at the, at the dawning of that age to do ministry, to bring them in. And that they might see a sense 
of this, the magnitude of this work. Verses 6 and 7, Ephesians 3, 6 and 7. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And so he says in verse 13, don't be discouraged because of my sufferings. Don't be discouraged that I'm in prison. It's not a shameful thing for me. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of this work. This is a glorious, mysterious thing that God is doing. And my sufferings really are your glory. Because of my sufferings, that's how the gospel advances. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Now in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, we come to what for me is the, is the best part of the whole book. I love the prayer that pray, Paul prays in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. It's the kind of thing that moves me emotionally. It's the kind of thing I pray for myself, for my family, for our church frequently. And in it, God uh, speaks through the Apostle Paul of a yearning and a desire uh, that, that, that Paul has of a special work of grace in the heart of the Ephesian Christians. Look at verses 16 through 19. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I can't hear those words without thinking about the Grand Canyon. That you would have a sense of the magnitude, the dimensions of Christ's love for you. That you would have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And that you would know that love that surpasses knowledge. It goes beyond cognitive knowledge. It goes into a whole different level of knowledge. That you would have an ever-expanding sense of Christ's love for you. So that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Wow. It's breathtaking. That you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I would say that that is not the common experience of most Christians. As a matter of fact, I would say that many Christians go their whole lives without really approaching the dimensions to which Paul prays for here. And my desire is that the ministry of the word and a, a regular beseeching on your part will lead to an incredible expansion of the work of the spirit in your hearts. That you would have a sense of just how much Jesus loves you. How dearly and deeply loved you are. And that you would be empowered by the Spirit to do those good works, Ephesians 2.10, that he has for you to do. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. To him that is at work in you and in the church around the world. To him be glory in the church throughout all generations now and forever. Ephesians 1-3, through 3, that's the scope and magnitude of what God has done for us in Christ. Then he turns the corner in Ephesians 4-6 through 6 and says, in effect... As Francis Schaeffer said, how then shall we live? How shall we live in light of this, these incredible teachings? And so he wants us to live out our unity in Christ. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is how he starts. He talks about unity, the oneness that we have. Not just merely Jew-Gentile, but just every individual Christian with every other individual Christian. And every uh, individual local uh, congregation with other local congregations. And just the worldwide work of unity of the Spirit. And this unity is under constant assault. It's constantly barraged by the world of flesh and the devil. We'll get to that in a moment. But this unity is something we have to defend. And so he says in Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one 
body and one spirit, just as we were called to one hope when we were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So one, 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 one. This unity, this work of unity. And we have to defend it and fight for it. But then in verses 7 through 16, he talks about diversity. He's gone from unity to diversity. So verse 7 begins with the word but. So we've been talking about unity. Now I'm going to go in a different direction. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And so we have a sense of the special working of the Spirit in each individual Christian's life. And so we come to the doctrine of spiritual gifts. And spiritual gifts is clearly taught in Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. That we have different gifts that God has given to us by the Spirit according to the measure, the, the, the measurement of, of Christ by the power of the Spirit, different gifts. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. There are those works again, Ephesians 2.10. To prepare God's people for works of service so that by those works of service the body of Christ might be built up to full maturity in Christ. So that means we have a role to play to get the body of Christ to its level of full maturity. You might be an evangelist or a missionary. You might be a pastor or a teacher. You might be an administrator. You might have the gift of giving or the gift of serving. You might have the gift of prayer or the gift of faith. You might have a variety of gifts. Those gifts are given to you by Christ through the Spirit for the building up of the body. So that we will, verse 13, all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then verses 15 and 16, speaking the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So we've got a role to play, we in the body of Christ. Everyone does. We have a spiritual gift ministry that God's given to us to get the body of Christ to full maturity. But now we have to protect our unity because it's under constant assault. I told you I would would mention that. In verses, uh, Ephesians 4, 17, up through, we could say 5, 21, he addresses issues of assault of the unity and what it is that divides Christians, really the problem of sin. He goes to the root of the problem. The root of the issue is sin. And if we're going to be one as the Father and the Son intend, if we're going to be one as the Father and the Son themselves are one, we're going to have to fight sin in every way. And and Paul begins by focusing on the mind. It all starts in how you think. So he says in verses 17 through 24, so he says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Do you hear all those mental words and mind words? Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. You were taught to put on 
the, the new self, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So that's just the overarching battle we must have against sin. We must be a holy people. And it begins with, with how we think and what we love, with our hearts and our minds. We must be pure. And then in the next section, Paul goes back and forth between what we would call negative sanctification and positive sanctification. So what we must not do or be and what we must do or be. Back and forth. And both of those are valid aspects of sanctification, of growth and immaturity. And so he says we, we must not lie. We must put off falsehood, falsehood but we must speak truth. Uh, thieves must stop their stealing, but instead they must work doing something useful with their own hands so they have something to share with those in need. And, and we should not say unwholesome things, but rather we should speak what is useful for building others up according to their needs. We should not be sexually impure, but we should be holy with our bodies and our minds. We should not speak obscenity, uh, but rather we should speak words of thanksgiving. Uh, we should not live as children of darkness, but rather we should live as children of the light. We should not live a foolish life, but rather we should find out what pleases the Lord and do it. We should not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead we should be filled with the Spirit. And that's going to be a big theme in Ephesians, is the Spirit-filled life. To be being filled with the Holy Spirit. To be empowered with the Spirit. Only by the Spirit can we defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, then beyond that, he talks about significant roles in the body of Christ. And how submission works in, that, in those roles. He says in verse 21, as a subset of the, of the Spirit-filled life, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, when I get to that, God willing, I'll talk about how I believe that that's not teaching a universal mutual submission of every Christian to every other Christian, which would vacate the word submission of its, of its meaning. Submission always has to do with God-ordained authority, a recognition of God-ordained authority. And so what he's saying there is category one is going to submit to category two in the way I'm about to describe to you. So this group is going to submit to this group. But this group, the one submitted to, should carry themselves in a certain way as Christians who have that authority. And so he goes through the marriage relationship, husband and wife. He goes through the parenting relationship, child and father. And he goes through the master-slave relationship, slave-master. And it's always the, the one who is commanded to submit first, the wife, the children, the slave. And then the one who is receiving the submission, how they should carry themselves, the father I'm sorry, the husband, the father, the master. But then immediately he goes into the, the most important and most significant human relationship there is on earth, and that is marriage. And how Christian marriages should be putting the unity of the gospel on display. So it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. And then the husband is told, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so we get this, this beautiful uh, Christian marriage and we'll have God willing a chance to go into it in detail. And really I think Ephesians 5, if, if husbands and wives were living that up, out, what an incredible effect that would have on our church and on the, on the nation. And then he goes to the parenting relationship. The children are to submit to their parents, to obey them and everything. Uh, but fathers are, are not to exasperate their children, but rather bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
And then the same thing with the master-slave relationship. First, first the slaves, that they are to submit to their masters and obey them as if they were obeying Christ. And not only when, when the master's eye is on them, but all the time. But then for their part, the masters should not dominate and be tyrannical and, and evil toward their slaves, but realize they have a master too, and they're going to have to give him an account on Judgment Day. Having given the issues of unity and struggling with sin and then key relationships, he then talks about the, the main central attack on the church and on uh, our unity, and that is the work of Satan and his minions. And so Ephesians 6 is probably the clearest, most detailed teacher, uh, teaching on spiritual warfare there is in the Bible. And so we're told to stand firm in the Lord because we have enemies. We have, an, as Peter calls it, our adversary, the devil, Paul says here in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realm. So stand firm and put on your spiritual armor. And he goes through these articles of, of spiritual armor, and they are impenetrable. They are powerful. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shield of faith, which is able to extinguish 100% of Satan's flaming arrows. And so we are thoroughly equipped, and we have in our hand the sword of the Spirit with which we can make advances for the kingdom of God. And we can call down God's sovereign prayer, like some call it a walkie-talkie, calling down some artillery fire, preferably not on our own heads, but on our enemies. And we're going to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, and keep on praying for all the saints. Paul ends up by saying, stand together with me in prayer. I need prayer too. Pray for my mission. Pray for my work. Pray that I would declare the the gospel boldly as I should. Peace to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. So that's Ephesians 1 through 6. And what I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to go through and draw out some main significant themes. So pretend now we're not in the airplane anymore. Now we're in the helicopter. And we're going to go back in and we're going to kind of hover for a while and look at some of the main ideas, some themes that I want to to draw out. And the first is God's ultimate end in all of this. Why is God doing all this? What is his purpose? And I, I would say few, if any books in the Bible, are so clear on what God's ultimate end and purpose is, as is the book of Ephesians. God does everything for the praise of his glory. That's a simple answer coming to us three different times in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Again and again we have this. God does everything for the praise of his glory or the praise of his glorious grace. So look at Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And here's this phrase, verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. Or perhaps to the praise of the glory of his grace. So in other words, God predestined us for salvation before the world began so that after world history had ended, we might be for the praise of his glory as revealed in his grace. Well, he says it again in Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So there we have it again in verse 12. And then we have it again um, in verse uh, 14. Verse 13 says of the Ephesians, having believed you are marked in him with a seal, 
the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Here's that phrase again. To the praise of his glory. So three times we have it. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. Well, what does that mean? What is God's glory? Well, God's glory, I believe, is the radiant display of his attributes. It's the radiant display of his nature. Okay? The, the shining brightness of his wisdom, his power, his love, his patience, his kindness, his wrath, his justice. There are various attributes. God wanted to put his own glory on display. And he's done that in creation, but he does it even more in redemption. He does it even more in the salvation of the elect from every tribe and language and people and nation. He shines through us and he will do so for all eternity. He does everything for the praise of his glory. Secondly, in order to achieve this end of the praise of his glory, God has worked out a meticulous plan. He's actually planned out everything. And I mean everything. Not just grand overarching themes, kind of like in this sermon... But details, down to the tiniest detail, and we'll get a chance to look at that when we get to verse 11 and 12, but God has worked out his plan in great detail. He had a plan, uh, clearly, in these verses that I just read. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. That's purpose language. He has a plan. And this plan is mentioned plainly in verse 11. Uh, It speaks of us having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. Now, what is the final end of this plan? What's he getting to? What is, what is, what is happening in history? Well, verse 9 and 10 answers that question very, very powerfully and well. Verse 9 says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Verse 10. To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment... To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's what he's doing. So I picture God in perfect unity before he created the universe. Before he created anything. Perfect unity, right? And then he wills to create heaven and earth. And he creates it. And he says, let there be light. And he does all this work in Genesis 1. And God pronounces everything very good. So creation and creator are in perfect unity, perfect harmony. But then sin entered the universe. Wickedness and evil entered the universe. And it has behaved like a fragmentation grenade that blew everything apart into bits, hurtling away from the true center. And so the disunity between the human race and God vertically has led clearly to a disunity between human beings one with another. From individual to individual, group to group, nation to nation. We see this every day. You see it on CNN every day or or MSN. You go wherever you want and you'll just see evidence of this fragmentation and this brokenness. God is willing to reverse that and bring everything back together under one head, Christ. And that's what he's doing. That's his purpose in all of these things. And he's going to bring together the elect and make them one. One new man, one new people together with no disunity at all. And central to that is the redemptive work of Christ. So the third theme is God's plan is affected by Christ, by the Spirit, by the gospel, and by the gifts. So these things are given to bring the plan about. So it will happen. He sent his Son... And in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. So God the Father made the plan. God the Son worked it out. 
God the, God the Son paid for it in his blood. And then God the Spirit moves throughout all of the world and throughout all of history to apply the plan, the saving work of Christ, to individual people and to groups. And so by Christ, by the Spirit, by the gospel message, as it says, in him you are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything, conformity to the purpose of, of his will, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal. So the gospel is out there. The word of truth is out there, powerful. People are hearing it. By the Spirit, they are believing, and they are marked, sealed with the Spirit. And so that's the unfolding of God's plan. It's applied by the Spirit, this message of the gospel. And spiritual gifts, gifted individuals, human beings, Christians, are instrumental to that plan. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Those guys take the word of God out to the ends of the earth. And they settle in and they shepherd churches. And they prepare the body of Christ to do those works of service. And then the gifted Christians use their gifts. And the whole building of Ephesians 2 or body of Ephesians 4 grows up to perfection and finality. That's how it's happening. That's what's going on in the world today. Now, God's plan is put on display in this unity. It's a unity in the heart through holiness. It's a unity in the church, Jew and Gentile, together one, made one through the Spirit. It's a unity in marriage and in parenting and in the master-slave relationship. As each group does what it needs to do, this unity is put on display perfectly and beautifully. That's God's purpose in all of this. God's plan is going to be opposed, as I've said, by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We should not expect an easy ride here. It's going to be hard. But you know what? We're going to win. Isn't that awesome? We're going to win. We're, the church, the elect, will be saved and glorified and radiant with God's glory for all eternity in heaven. So this is, this is Ephesians 1 through 6. This is the book of Ephesians. Now, God willing, if he gives us time, we'll get a chance to go through it verse by verse. If he doesn't, we'll get to see it with our own eyes, the glory of God in heaven. Amen? So what applications can we take for this? Well, get a sense of the scope of salvation history through this. And not just this morning, but we're going to have a chance, God willing, next week and in the subsequent weeks to see how meticulously God has put history together. This is not thrown together, but this has been meticulously planned. So get a sense of that and feel secure in that. Don't feel like every time you go watch the news or go onto a website which tells you some of the things that are happening, it's like we're going off the rails here. The wheels are coming off. No, no, this is exactly what we would expect to happen. This is the disunity and fragmentation that Satan has worked. But there is a secret power at work in the world called the gospel and the power of the spirit that is changing everything. So be confident as you look at world history. Be confident that God knows exactly what he's doing. And how should God's commitment to his own glory affect us? Live for God's glory. Away with your selfish plans. Away with living for your own glory. Away with living for your own purposes. Say, God, what is your plan for me? What is your purpose for my life? How have you gifted me? How have you prepared me? What am I to do? How can I live for your glory? And it's such a powerful idea, isn't it? Just husbands and wives say, I want our marriage to be for the praise of God's glory. How can we do that? I want our parenting to be for the praise of God's glory. How can we have a household that will be for the praise of God's glory? How can I do my employment? How could I be an employer or employee for the praise of God's glory and putting God on display? How can I do that? 
Thirdly, how can we see in Ephesians the greatness of Christ? Well, I just want to zero in on one thing. All right, there's so many things about the greatness of Christ, but at the end of Ephesians 3, I will be praying for you every day through this series that you would have power together with all the saints to get the sense of the scope and the magnitude of Christ's love for you. You are greatly underestimating it right now. You are greatly underestimating, and I am too, how much Christ loves you and me. And it will be unbelievably empowering and liberating for you to improve even by 10% of a sense of the magnitude of Christ's love for you. So I'm going to be praying that you would have a sense, together with all the saints, of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And what about unity? Pray for the unity of our church. Pray that our church would put on display supernatural unity. First of all, just two sinners getting along in Christ is supernatural. Amen? You're like, well, that's kind of, no, no, that's supernatural. We are so selfish and so wicked and carnal, etc., that we could actually genuinely love each other from the heart is supernatural. But I want to see, you know, racial reconciliation on display through this church. I want to see surprising unity. I want to see a unity that makes people like John 17 sit up and take notice and say, what could have caused this? Only the gospel. Let's see what God can do in a supernatural work of unity in FBC Durham, right here in this in this city. Finally, how can you be exhorted to be about the master's business, covered with the armor of God, aware that Satan's opposing you? How can you be exhorted to be active in evangelism and missions? I mean, Satan's going to be attacking it, especially the more we get fruitful here, but God has given to us, committed to us, the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5. Ephesians is very plain that only by putting on the spiritual armor of God with our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, will we be able to make progress in the external journey of evangelism and missions? So I would just ask that you present yourself to God as ready to serve him, to invite people to church, to talk to lost people about their faith uh, and, and about the gospel, and to be instrumental. And then internally within the walls of the church that you would use your spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ until it reaches full maturity in Christ. Close with me in prayer, if you would. Father, we thank you for this very quick flyover we've had in Ephesians. It's been rich. I look forward. I almost can't wait to get into the section next week in Ephesians 1. And I just pray that you would teach us and instruct us and prepare us, O Lord, for that. I pray that the things we've already learned now from Ephesians would be so ingrained in our hearts and minds that we would want to live them out. O God, I pray for your Christians that are here now. Fill us with the Holy Spirit of God. I pray that we'd be spirit-filled. And Lord, for lost people, one more time, I pray that they would not leave this place lost, but they would see by faith Christ crucified for their sins, risen from the dead by the, by the power of God, and that, that full forgiveness could be theirs if they'll just trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.